0: Is
1: Swampside Chats, a podcast where uh, almost every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we'll be reading Organizational Materialism by Gene Allen. In the Swampside first, we're delighted to welcome on none other but the author Gene Allen himself to discuss his piece.
2: Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa and join me tonight is Donald.
1: Hey, it's Donald, also Communist League of Tampa. Lexi. Hey, Lexi from Emancipation, organizationally materialist.
2: And we have a new guest on the panel tonight, um, author of the piece we're actually discussing. Uh, please welcome Gene. Wow. Uh, uh, is it Gene or Jean?
1: I'm yeah, voting it's Jean. Jean. That's Gene. Okay. All right.
2: All right. Well well uh, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for coming. Gene Allen. This is a first, right? Um this is your first. Well, you know, like bringing an author on to discuss work. Like, we, we didn't get ticked in or anything.
2: Uh, try tried as we did. Yeah, no, we didn't. Um, we had Varn on at one point, but he was just talking shit about platypus.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we'll be discussing uh, organizational materialism, an article by Jean Allen, with <laughs> Jean, Jean Allen. Jean
1: Allen himself. Sean Jean. So the and, title
2: is organization materialism considerations on contemporary leftism Um, and so what what prompted you to write this article
0: well i feel like like a lot of my better i feel like a lot of my better articles come from like a percolation of like a lot of shit that i've read and stuff that like sticks in my head to the point that i'm like well i feel like i can write let's check 21 pages on this um And what organizational materialism really was, was that, well, I studied organizational theory um, from the get-go, and that's something that I haven't really been able to utilize that much, because a lot of the history of leftism comes from, like, this ideological standpoint um, of... And it's frustrated me. And then beyond that, there's been this. There were just a series of things, uh, especially around mutual aid. There's like this kind of idea that a lot of people had that this article is incredibly pro mutual aid, but it was more that I kept on finding uh, like sideways things where it's like, oh, you know. And the major force behind the CGT, which is the French Syndicalist Union, forming was the 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 mutual aid organizations. And then, like, mm. in David Graver's direct action, he's he has this, like, short piece about how, like, there was this massive community, like, garden and community spaces movement in New York in the 80s. And then, like, you look for that, and you can't find shit about it. And it's like, what the I fuck? Mean, There's I mean, this whole history that one can look at when you look at actually from the perspective of not just who was right, but like the entirety of the left, that. Yeah.
3: Like one thing to keep in mind is I think the whole argument about mutual aid networks being what the unions came out of is often forgotten. And it's also one of the things that the Italian fascists attacked in Italy when they were attacking the socialists and communists was their cooperatives and stuff. So, you know, that stuff is an important part of the movement.
0: Yeah. And also just, you know, I was a Tumblr lefty for a long period of time. And after a while, it, you know, after arguing about the same fucking shit for, you know, three or four years, it's you start to just kind of get the structure of these arguments. And I came to start thinking that a lot of the arguments weren't necessarily they kept on happening because the structural reasons for them occurring hadn't been dealt with.
2: Um, I was never like a Tumblr person. Can you describe kind of what these arguments were about exactly? Oh, you know, your typical
0: fucking, your typical, you know, should we have a totalitarian death squads Leninist state or or an anarchic death squads anarchist state? Okay. (laughs) You know. But, like, when I got onto Tumblr in 20, like, radical Tumblr in 2012, there were a lot of, like, uh, pretty, you know, disciplined and, like, pretty intellectual anarchists who, despite Tumblr not being as anarchistic as it was at that period of time, like, there's definitely this influence within Tumblr and, like, that a lot of stuff... As opposed to Facebook, and now I'm getting into this, but as opposed to Facebook, where, you, where like you're basically able to act completely without interacting with people who disagree with you on the minutest of point if you don't want to. On Tumblr, you can't really get to a certain size as a blog without having to interact with other tendencies of leftism.
1: I was going to ask about your four major propositions.
0: I kind of started off with, uh, like, the, there are four major considerations I want to make in this paper. One, while the contradictions of capitalism are determined in the long term, inevitably creating new struggles and new fights. In the time that human beings experience all history, the history of all hitherto existing class conflict is the history of organizational struggles, namely that within the span of your personal life you aren't necessarily you'll be dealing with like recessions and shit but it's determined by the that's deter like the way that you experience that is determined by like you know the kinds of struggles that exist around that not like this and abstracted
3: and you also just um, have like in organizations you have a general culture of organization like a set of norms and ideas about yes. how
0: things are done yes um two the material reality of these organizations are in a constant process of creation and reproduction based on what that organization practically does um which is uh basically that you kind of justify and continue to do things that you're already doing and three this leads to organizations creating thought and theory which justify their actions which leads over time to limiting Limiting and co-optive tendencies as these groups solidify and self-justify. Four, while individuals and subgroups can resist these tendencies alone, they will be sl- they will slowly be overcome. These tendencies cannot be stopped from within; they can only pre- be prevented on the whole through the existence of an ecology of a different organizations. Um, and I admit, like literally, next thing these are not ironclad assumptions because I didn't want to piss anybody off too much
1: well not only do you not want to piss anybody off too much i think uh you're probably aware of a of the i mean it's coded as a right-wing critique of organizations but i think it's i think it's a pretty solid critique that uh of bureaucratic drift you know like this has some resonances with that except i guess with the drift theory it's a little more like focusing on the one group and saying look what you the group needs to do is expand and if yeah. it doesn't expand, it's going to drift and create this self-justifying activity, and kind and of anything, outlive its usefulness.
0: If anything, that happens when you're expanding. Yeah, I'm very well aware that this gets coded as like a kind of right-wing like attack on these organizations and stuff. And like, I do make like the point, the uh, concession to nihilism in the first thing, where it's like, yeah, like in the end, in the long term, the contradictions of the economy is what creates new struggles and stuff like that. But nobody lives their life at that level. Um, and yeah, I'm not like, well, I mean, how much, how much of this is just something that
2: people just kind of do as individuals too. You know what I mean? Like you basically just, you know, you make these decisions based upon a variety of, some of a variety of things, some of which you don't even understand. Then after the fact you just kind of rationalize what you did. Yeah.
0: And I think that it's a productive... I'm not, like... I don't think that it's the, you know, the be-all, the be end-all, end all, that, like, everyone should be organizational materialists. But from, like, my personal thing, it's been, like, a very helpful way to organize my thought around, like, why is this person making this point? And it's like, yeah, because people love the history of activism. Why don't they actually do the archival research into them? Or another example I'm doing, like why are all the studies about the internet, like, so disappointing? Um, and it's because, like, people see internet movements or movements in general either as the extension of the intellectuals who wrote about them, because that's a way that you can justify it to the academy, that you're, like, instead of writing about fucking, like, the Surgeon of Truth organization, I'm going to write about Noel Ignatiev, and at the very least, that's something where it's, like, you have books to talk about and articles to talk about. Or you see those movements as kind of ciphers that just justify everything that you already think. One of my big complaints about... uh, What's that one? Kill All Normies? Yeah. Like, perspectives. Like, looking at the way that people look at 4chan, for instance, like, that academics look at it, is... Either as the extension of other academics and intellectuals or as like things that you already want to say, and yeah, say. Um, I mean, the problems of that book could just be an entire
3: episode. There were just so many like general Angela, assumptions in
0: that book with absolutely no evidence whatsoever. Nagle come on the Swamp Side, um. I oh like,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure Doug would be real happy about that. You know, no problem at all.
0: The issue the issue isn't like that they analyzed it wrong. It's like that there is a structure that makes it difficult for you to analyze it correctly within the academy. But another major
2: obstacle to doing that kind of research is that it's hard and it's boring and who's gonna pay for it. You know what I mean? That's always been that's always been like the big one of the biggest challenges of Marxism going back to the very beginning is that you know it's like it's hard to get it's hard to get capitalist money to undermine capitalism. Yeah, yeah, so uh, yeah, and it's because I know I certainly hit, feel like I hit these points where it's like I find I, I you know, you basically explore through Marxism. And you go down all these different threads, and then you find, like, this new area that's completely unexplored, and you won't know that if you want to understand it, there's nobody you can read because you'd have to do the research yourself. And you can yes. ask like, all right, well, I'm setting aside two years of my life to do this. Yeah. I can go do something else.
1: <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like, you have to, like, if I want to, you know, understand every way of doing Marxian value theory, I have to fucking sit down compare each version of the same equation <laughs> you got to just do yeah. it yourself that's like a lot of work i didn't know this how bad do you want it because it's easy when all you have to yeah.
2: do is read a couple of books but when you have to like do original research in your spare time and granted you know that is maybe that maybe you know you can you know build a career off doing that stuff but the question is is that what you want to do yeah um, precisely so, yeah, I mean, like, I mean my, my impression just like reading this is that, uh, it I mean, it, like theoretically it feels a little incomplete. Like it feels like there's something developing here, but I think you're on to something because so much there are like debates about like uh, spontaneity. And it's like, <clears throat> should we yeah. just really like believe in spontaneity? Like, isn't this coming from somewhere? Like, what underpins, you know, th- those?
3: Spontaneity. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, that's of... a that's a constant discussion that, we, you know, we have, is that, you know, these organizations, these revolts that we see as spontaneous, like even if they were, like, you know, not at the whim of the leadership of a party, there was still this whole network of parties and unions and co-ops and secret organizations and et cetera. And it was those things existing that made the idea of a spontaneous mass strike even exists in people's heads
0: precise yeah definitely
3: but um, i feel like um in a lot of like ultra left circles there's this kind of idea that oh the economy is just going to collapse and it's going to get so bad that people are just going to be forced to mass strike to survive when the reality is that people don't have that existing class solidarity that allows for a mass strike to happen if they don't already have some kind of common class, you know, existence. Like, you're not going to have the actual solidarity that lets you see, like, you know, other workers going on strike, and you go on strike just, just for solidarity with them, unless there's actually something underpinning that.
0: Yes. Um... I just want to say, Jake, that you just paid me, like, one of the biggest compliments that I ever give another writer, which is that fundamentally their work is disappointing. Um, But it's like that disappointment disappointment comes from the person having ambitions that you are not able to, like, come up to. It doesn't. You know, like a book wouldn't be disappointing if there weren't like hopes that you had about it. Oh
3: yeah, I mean, if this wasn't interesting, we wouldn't have had you on the show to talk about it. Because
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're, I think you're onto something.
2: You know, you just uh, keep keep going, dude. Keep doing, keep keep on trucking. Thanks, bro. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Though. I mean, I do, I do actually think you're onto something here. Um, and uh, I think you know, I, I'm curious to see like what um. You know where the where where your uh, investigation into this goes in the future?
3: Yeah, I mean, I just I completely support this venture of you know using bourgeois organizational science and turning it on its head, and you know just actually you know basing our analysis off of more than just capital, but really
0: you know developing a scientific worldview. Yeah, that's something that I that I've found frustrating, like, uh, I'm reading the H word right now. And the, which is a history of he- the term hegemony. Yeah. The and he Terry Anderson about, book. Yeah, He talks about how in the 1960s in Italy, there had already been like 300, 3000 books that like, uh, cited Gramsci, but not a single one of them actually analyzed society, which was like the first thing. And like, the uh, foundation of all of Gramsci's, like, none of them analyzed, like, the mass base of society from which all this stuff came from. They just kind of used Gramsci as an excuse to talk about culture. Yeah, um,
3: it's, it's really frustrating how it exactly ends up.
0: kind of embarrassing that, like, it's, like, a, a century later, and Lenin's a cool guy, but, like, it's kind of embarrassing that the first thing that Marxists point to when we want to go beyond like a high school idea of how the state works is point to like Lenin who wrote a century ago, like a kind of salty like post that Lenin wrote in Finland, like 101 years. <laughs> yeah. Ago. I
3: mean, there's just, I mean, we've talked about this in a past episode and I even wrote a piece on state and revolution. How, I mean, yeah, there's fundamental points he makes that are correct, but there's also just a, uh, it's such a historically different situation, and the way things panned out does yeah. show that there is a
0: flaw in the theory. And what sucks is all the modernizers suck, too. So we kind of got to, yeah, kind of start from scratch.
1: <laughs> the modernizers. <laughs> there's definitely, it's definitely interesting Marxian state theory, but there's, there's only, like, some remarks on the state. There's nothing systematic in Marx about, you know, state politics. And there's, like, his early comments on the state, which are almost seem like like a modernization theory where the state is referring to this particular abstractified bourgeois state and then there's like this dictatorship of the proletariat kind of concept of like the bridge to stateless society and that kind of shit
0: like to to point to stuff that i am working on right now something that i you know Uh, I kind of feel about Marx is that the fact that he grew up in Prussia, which was one of the only states that had that, like, kind of Hegelian ideal, not that corrupted state, really influenced his works. Whereas when you look at, like, the way that the American state works now on, like, the local level, it's, like, a complete fucking mess. It's, like, you have NGOs, you have all of these, like, mass media organizations, and they're all, like, connected in some weird way to, like, the one political party that wins every election at the local level and shit like that. We gotta analyze a little bit beyond stuff that Lenin was writing about when he was writing about the bass uh Tsarist state. The state has really just changed
3: radically since World War I and World War II, and then in the 1980s, like, you see three big face transitions in the development of the capitalist state.
0: Yeah. But, like, nowadays, people will point to Lenin to justify fucking running for dog catcher, except you also deport Latinos or some shit like that. And it's like, well, you're an ultra leftist if you disagree. And it's like, well, I guess you're right. I don't have any anything new that I can use to disagree with that. I don't know well, I,
3: th- I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna defend on originality because sometimes if it ain't broke don't fix it but <laughs> you need to be willing to recognize when something is broke and has to be fixed
0: I I read lookclo myself and there are definitely things to be said for everything that's new should be destroyed but uh <laughs> it's just frustrating that like there hasn't been all that much you know all that many attempts and a lot of the attempts are this is, a, this is a question that uh,
1: I run into a lot on the Emancipation podcast is that we're trying to sort of flesh out like a scientific research program for yeah. Marxism today. And to, and to try to even begin to do that, you have to survey quite a bit of literature to get like yeah. a sense of where everything's at and then to let alone before you really try to make anything plug in to anything else in the theory. Like, yeah, absolutely. And so there's there's like a... Uh, kind of long-term way of reading Marx and Engels that Marx kind of makes these kind of negative critiques and like some wispy kind of vaguish statements about you know like how things would be otherwise and then Engels kind of takes some of that real genius stuff and does you know like a little more of an elaboration onto it it's like maybe that dynamic is overstated but like it's important to have that angle side of things, in my view. Like, yeah. it's, it's better to try to, to to try for a broader understanding, not so much because you think you have it all figured out, but as a sort of pragmatic device, so you can try to un- try to understand the world in order to do something yeah. about it.
3: <laughs> I think um, people are just afraid of being correct, or like you know, they just, they, they don't want to actually say they're every correct because everything's relative. But I mean, there is the opposite problem, of course. Where yeah, there's like there's two sides of a coin. Where it's like no one ever wants to admit they're correct, and it's all just subjective. And then it's oh, I'm always right, and everyone else is wrong. And often those two things go together, actually. But I was gonna say that you know, with Marxist state theory, what I'd really like to see is more state theory that starts with the state as a material institution in society that is materially reproduced. Because yes. usually, state theory doesn't really start. Like uh, if you read the state derivation debates, like I read those, and it was just like, oh, this abstracts sort of how the state is like, a like a reflection of the form of value. Oh. And, yeah, just really like abstract, useless stuff that didn't actually look at like the material reproduction and historical development of the modern state. And like it's just like, oh well a state is this impersonal bureaucracy, just like, you know, value is just impersonal force that dominates us. And it's just like you can only say that so often and, and you know, until it just becomes boring and you're not actually saying anything.
1: There's an element of truth to that, but it kind of undersells how important an organizational form of state can be. To kind of, in the spirit of the uh, the paper being discussed, it's sort of what's missing in the critique of anti-fascism that Bortigas do, you know, where it's like, well, fascism, just kind of another form of capitalism, you know? And it's like, yeah, but, you know, that's... that's that, different. Like it's, that state form. It's like,
3: yeah, the content is bourgeois, so the form doesn't matter because it's just the same content and form is just like this reflection of content and... Yeah, that's that's the Bordiga's brain rot that you get. And it turns out that form is actually really important, and organizational norms and cultures are very important. And you know, organization is not degenerating. You know,
2: I was just gonna say earlier you mentioned um, organizational theory. Yeah, Yeah. pink pill us on that. What the fuck is that? Yeah, you. uh, What do you think it has to offer, um, leftists,
0: right now? organizational theory is the liberal side of management theory, which is the more serious side of business theory. Mm. Um, I took an uh, an organizational theory with this, like, pretty, you know, looking back, like, not that radical, but radical for his subfield professor, if that makes sense. He wasn't a communist or anything, but he did believe that, like... Democratic management was, like, a more efficient kind of managing and stuff like that. Mm. Um, And that was actually, I wrote a paper in 2013 that you can still find, which is a critical history of management thought. Um, But really, organizational theory, it's like a kind of broad spectrum thing. But it's looking at organizations as a whole rather than a lot of business theory and management theory has the idea that if you individually had this uh, confidence of like, oh, you know, I'm an authoritarian business figure and, you know, do what I say, then like shit will work. And then everything else is just accounting. Whereas organizational theory looks more closely at the processes involved in that. So you would say it's, it's like looking at
3: the social form of how activity is organized and how those social forms affect, you know, the outcome of certain things. Yes, and it's Without still
0: very yeah, and it's still very much influenced by the fact that it is high and for uh, people who are in the upper echelons of management. Um,
3: yeah, so it's kind of like I was saying, it's kind of like um, taking a bourgeois theory and you know doing an imminent critique of it. You know, it's basically what Marx did with economics, and yes. I think you know that's something I think leftists honestly should do more is like, yeah, read, yeah. like read this kind of stuff like this organizational stuff and read like this corp, um you know some of this read some of his corporate like guidelines on leadership stuff and actually like figure out like why are the capitalists so well organized and maybe we can learn something from them god forbid
0: posts about who's gay in steven universe
1: right? Yeah, those are obviously more pressing matters. Well, more importantly, we, we have our own perspective and, and class science, Donald. We couldn't possibly yes. take, you know, management yeah. ideology or math and apply it. You know you know what I mean? We can't do that. Oh, you
3: know, yeah. that's You get that ultra-subjectivist strain in Marxism where it's like, oh, the worker's standpoint is the science. and But that's, you know, that's just, you know, the same type of thinking leads you to liberal identity politics, and that's a...
0: Well, and it's, you know, there is this kind of, like, um, people do critique postmodernism, I think, far too much. But, uh, you know, I do wish that there were more social science commies out there, um, because it's kind of frustrating when you're trying to get together, like, a series of articles, and half of them are about, like, a weird take on some book that's, uh, itself, a weird take on another book.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, some post-structuralist theory is like pretty cool. It's it's it's, it's like a useful footnote to Marxism, you know. It's just you can't make like a system out of it, like you can with Marxism that can explain things.
1: You can only kind of describe things with it. I feel well. Well, you could systematize what they're doing, but they have a a fetish and a kind of like loyalty to the idea that systemization is inherently going to like lead you down either a dialectic of enlightenment kind of totalitarian hell hole or some, there's some kind of like, um, you know, Gödel's theorem problem where you can't like completely describe things in the system so that you're going to have to adopt other kinds of analyses in order to um, get different angles on it, which I think the second one is probably the stronger uh, objection.
0: Yeah, I, you know, to get a bit ahead of myself um, to the section about like intellectuals nowadays, but I do feel like postmodernism and poststructuralism gets a bit oversignified because people yeah. look at the situation in the left and they try to find some internal traitor uh, who's the cause of it. And, mm. you know, they blame it on poststructuralists because most, a lot of lefties are academics and have to deal with poststructuralism.
2: When you try and do like, Organizing often, like a lot of the worst people, will be peddling like post-structuralist and postmodernist thoughts.
3: <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, but it's very true that like a lot of the liberal hillbot, like Democratic Party people, they don't realize it sometimes, but they are like peddling arguments that you hear in post-structuralist thought, just
1: like filtered through. Like, the popular, like, you know, messaging. It's genealogically post-structuralist, but by that point, it's incorporated into something that I think is qualitatively different. And I think that gets to Gene's uh, point here, is that uh, post-structuralism is signified as the problem where—
0: It could be any—like, it could be literally anything. It's just, uh, it's just the trappings of ideology. Talking about, you know, c- Catholic theology or some shit like that
1: post-structuralist wing that I think is the most problematic is the Derrida, like everything is a text kind of wing, whereas I think the interesting parts of post-structuralism are usually coming from like a like structuralist Marxist kind of set of intuitions Yeah, that- I feel like the, the most interesting post-structuralist that I've read just seem to be like super Althusserian Marxism mm-hmm. <laughs> like so, so, social reproductive feminism, social reproduction feminism. Like, honestly, the cluster of stuff around Viewpoint Magazine. Like, while I can't get behind everything they put out, I think like their overall orientation is pretty good, and it, it's it's pretty much one of the only channels of this altusarian strain that I think is useful. So, uh, all right, tell me your feelings about Foucault. Um, anyway. <laughs>
2: well, so how do we how do we actually um. Like, get rid of this stuff, though, or get out of the sort of c- a cycle that, like, what is, what is the material basis for this ideology being so predominant?
1: Well, that's spelled out in the article pretty well, actually, if you don't mind me reading a little bit of it. Um, this brings up another misconception the gro- that the growth of activism is due to some postmodern intellectual trend. The tendency takes the symptom as the cause and treats the activist organizations of the 80s and 90s as if they simply came out of the ether, as if the end of the mass party was caused by Foucault.
0: I'd say that that's frustrating, but you see very, very similar stuff coming out of, like, the 50s. It's a product of us existing in this, like, very deep well of reaction, Mm -hmm. more so than, you know, it causes...
3: If you look at the arguments in social democracy, a lot of um, the revisionists also, like, came to these conclusions about, you know, the working class... no longer the revolutionary subject. Capitalism is the best system. It just needs to be perfected. So, you know, you see, like, I guess there's there's a maxim that McNair always uses, that like, like, all bad politics is just a
1: repeat of past bad politics. It draws out, um, I guess, sort of the genius of talking about the organizational level um, because it's not the macro-deterministic level. It's not the, you know, a rational choice, individual actor model. Um, yeah. And it's, it, it's, it's talking about these, like, collective actors, but it's also not, like, assuming that all of them are the same inside. Like, yes. there's, there's different uh, ways of structuring them.
0: That's another kind of meta-argument that you consistently see, where it's like, you know, do you make sure that all of your, like, that all the beer that you drink and all the weed that you smoke is vegan? Or do you, like, literally not give a single shit because it's all fucking... Stru- and it's like, that's a completely false binary because at the level of an individual, your decisions, you know, they matter to you and to the people around you. But but at the same time, like, delegating everything... Like, I, I, I'm a big fan of Monsieur Dupont in a lot of ways. They express an argument that rarely is actually positively expressed. Um, It's always like, these fucking asshole nihilists say all this stuff. Whereas they actually express that point. That said, delegating everything to the structural level ends up creating an almost religious narrative of, you know, eventually fucking the apocalypse will come or
3: something. Well, yeah, exactly. It's it's what creates that millenarian, like, we just gotta wait for the
1: real movement to jump up out of the you know, contradictions of the economy or whatever. Yeah, being a leftcom means never having to say you're Sorrel.
0: <laughs> my podcast, and it's my podcast now. So basically my argument, and I would be the first to admit that it's not as fully fleshed out as I would like it to be because I'm not a PhD student and I don't have all of the time and all the access, was to... I basically set out that there are like a bunch of kinds of organizations. There's like unions, there's mutual aid organizations, and like kind of co-ops. Although I didn't really talk about co-ops because, again, I didn't have the resources to do enough research about that. Um, Political parties, intellectual organizations, and activist groups, and all of these kinds of organizations, because of the structure of these organizations, have their own flaws. And as time goes on, if they're kind of left as the only kind of organization that exists within the broader left, those flaws within the organization become general flaws of the entirety of the radical sphere.
3: I was just going to rephrase that. To make sure. So basically, you're saying that we need to not look at the left as an well we just need to build this kind of organization. but look at it as like a, a what you call an ecology of different organizations. that all kind of Exist in relation to each other, and you know, act in relation to each other, and they're not isolated. And more, you shouldn't fetishize one form of organization as a solution, like what Leninists do with the revolutionary party or anarcho-syndicalists do with the revolutionary trade union. But instead, you should see all these organizations as working in a constellation with one another, and that they have yes. different strengths and weaknesses that cover for each other. That way, we can have a more you know, a more holistic understanding of the left and how to um, fix it and get out of this horrible situation we're in.
0: Like, taking a broad-spectrum point rather than, like, trying to... There's, like, kind of... It's not Trotskyists, no hate against Trotskyists, but... um, the kind of crude meta Trotskyist point where it's like, we need to find the fucking group of five people who are right about everything, and they, that, that's the fucking last party. Like, well, you cut and, off,
3: you cut off after you said Trotskyist. I heard him. Oh. Yeah, I heard him. <laughs> Donald, the your
0: connections. Oh, fuck. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's chill. Um, but, uh, buh, buh, buh. yeah, like, something it's- that, Looking at, like, a lot of... The way that a lot of people treat, for instance, the syndicalists or, like, rel- like other activist movements or radical movements that failed is kind of weird to me because, like, uh, in the end, like, in order to come up against the fucking structural force that is, like, all of capitalism and all of imperialism and shit like that, yeah, there are going to be some failures, but, like, if you look at it as a whole I think it's it's a point that I made in some stupid Facebook thread where it's like yeah, there were not, the Narodniks and the Mensheviks had definite problems and I'm not saying that they're good but if it was just a Bolshevik party, if there hadn't been 30 years of struggle that went through different forms and had different aspects to it, the Russian Revolution wouldn't have fucking happened.
3: Oh yeah, definitely and it's like the, the same for you know, the the spanish and the italian and german events like there was yeah. long periods of patient organizing cooperatives and trade unions and then elections that basically created the kind of organizational alternative and system that allowed us to even exist
0: and in the early 1920s late 1910s they were a fucking hair's length away from shit really you know going down and,
3: yeah, I yeah. mean Joseph Schumpeter himself said that he, capitalism surviving.
0: Yeah. So like, you know, I, I don't see just because they, you know, most or like in the end most movements are going to fail or they're going to get co-opted. What's astonishing, we should learn from them. But like, you know, something that's frustrating to me, I'm writing this other book review about um uh LA Kaufman's direct action is that when a movement fails, we just forget that it fucking happened. And then we're just like, oh, we're gonna do something else and react against it. Um, without actually analyzing what the issue was.
3: Based on my observations, a lot of the same activist like rituals that kind of destroyed Occupy repeating themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Or acting as if Occupy and the movement, the whole era that occurred before it, didn't happen and they sucked anyway, and let's not learn anything from them. And it's like, then what's to stop you from making those same mistakes? Uh,
2: what do you what do you attribute this memory hole to exactly? Is it is it some combination of? Just the kind of you know United States of Amnesia that Gore Vidal used to talk about, combined with the increasingly narrow news cycle, combined with the burnout and high turnover within activist circles that never sees that a uh, very many of the same people over and over again. Like, uh, is there something else, or is it some combination of those things?
0: To what say my, you, sir? To go to like an organi- the perspective, I have in organizational materialism. The, part of the issue is that most of the analysis of these organizations is not done by organizers. It's done from the perspective of intellectuals and academics. So, you know, there is this idea of, like, Althusser as, like, the fucking scholar, pr- enlightened scholar prince that <laughs> Althusser kind of, like, went for, where it's like, oh, and then he has got everything right, and then... And then everyone was like, gosh, shit, let's do this. And nothing works that way. <laughs> it does seem like a lot of the post-mortems are very much like, well,
2: you see, this is this movement was actually uh, petty bourgeois because of X, Y, and Z. Or if it's like, they became, they fell subject to this ideology, and that ideology is dumb, and therefore they're dumb, and therefore they failed. And that's one of the
0: things that I talk about, where it's like over-determining to the structural side, where it's like, yeah, this movement was petite bourgeois because, like, three of them were college students and, you know, and therefore they could never have won versus, like, the, they didn't read the right fucking books in, in the right way uh, and in the correct but I, well, uh, issue.
2: I will say this, though. Um, I do remember during Occupy, um, there was uh, an extreme, like, hyper-focus on structure and organization, and it's it's almost all we talked about to the exclusion of anything else. Occupy almost had the opposite problem, where it was so obsessed with form that it never actually developed, like, an outward political content or program to change society.
0: Yes, Um, And that I actually wrote about in terms of like, because activist organizations are necessarily focused around individual actions, their broader societal presence is ephemeral. Like a shoddy relative, an activist action will be aggressively present, perhaps a day, perhaps a week, perhaps a month, but then it will be gone, perhaps forever. This is reinforced by the natural personal politics that come with a combination of small groups placed under enormous strain. Unless intensive measures are taken, a degree of exclusion will predominate. Like basically, there's this like self-centeredness because you're trying to do an action correctly. Um, uh, yeah, that that's like the problem within activist, like the form of activism, because you're trying to do it. You're trying their ideas like if we do enough protests right. Then you're hyper-focused on your own organizational form and your own like how you do the protest.
3: I, I definitely know what you're talking about, though. Like I've, like I said, I've seen this stuff too much with my own eyes.
2: So, what would be like a good way for um, people, organizers, to do, do like organizational analysis in terms of like assessing um, past movements?
0: Like I said, it's like you're looking at the whole movement, um, and I'm talking about like L.A. Kaufman, like especially like the period, the last ge- the generation that came before us, it's generally because all of our histories, and that also talks to like why we have this amnesia, because all of our histories are like just about ACT UP or just about Greenpeace or just about this specific movement or this specific thinker. You don't get the sense that they were in interaction with each other and flowed into each other um, and learned from each other. Um, so that's like the biggest one of the things that the biggest things that i would argue for is like looking at it as a whole structure and like looking yeah them,
3: like that's a good lesson know? for history to like for historians you know the labor movement and the social movements to take into account you know
1: yeah it's more or less marx's critique of great men just about groups yeah exactly
3: well it's uh it's you know, because often, you know, you'll get history of the Communist Party in Harlem. But the thing is, that Communist Party was part of an entire, you know, microcosm of different, you know, social movements and groups that were often antagonistic, often working together, often, you know, on neutral terms. and
0: Or often had people working, doing different, like, serving functions in multiple groups. Yeah, exactly. We kind of replicate this fragmentation into the past when that's never been true.
3: I was going to say, this, you notice this in arguments about the history of the IWW. People tend to counterpose the IWW to the Socialist Party. When the reality yeah. is, most IWW members were in the Socialist Party and did have socialist candidates speak at their union halls. They just didn't yes. think that the union should formally. Endorse politicians, but that doesn't mean that, you know, wobblies weren't part of the socialist party and weren't part of, you know, co-ops and, you know, electoral campaigns run by the socialist party. And so, yeah, there's definitely a historical amnesia that happens when you don't look at how, you know, this is a microcosm of different
0: organizations, you know? It's- and because that's viewed like an amnesiac kind of way, you get this kind of idealistic response, like, you know, uh, in many ways, the only worse thing than, like, contemporary identity politics is the response to contemporary identity identity politics, where it's yeah. like... Uh, down on workerism. Let's all just fucking join a union and then we'll make the last, you know, 40 years, and the systemic problems that led to people being like, you know, maybe, like, a general communist party is a bad idea. That, that'll just wipe that all away and we'll all be... ...or <laughs> some shit.
1: That's especially delusional, and honestly, I prefer – I honestly, like, prefer, like, the some of the more grounded identity politics people that aren't, you know, in total left field, uh, no pun intended, um, because they're kind of reacting to something that exists, and there's sort of, like, imminent, I don't know, self-identification of struggle, whereas with class politics today, it's not like people don't know that, you know – they're, they're dealing with a problem, a capitalist problem of some kind. Um, like, a, a lot of people are aware of that. Just structurally, that seems like a pretty, you know, pr- like a real long shot.
0: Are they, well, are, they,
2: that, are they aware of it, though?
1: I think well, that it's it's well, because... Of, a lot yeah. of people
3: are, not everybody. And it's easier, it's easier to do identity politics today because you can do identity politics as a lone individual, but to do class politics, it has to be a collective thing.
1: So, yeah, I mean, yeah you have, you have, well, I mean, you have to stick your neck out with certain kinds of identity politics, not all of them, certainly not the one that's most popular. But, yeah, there, there is like, I don't know, certain like forms of anti-racist politics, feminist politics, queer politics where you're trying to create like oh! aut- autonomous spaces, you know, for people like yeah. there oh, yeah. y- you do kind of like unless you live in. I don't know, like on a campus that's it's really cushy and has a way different incentive system than the rest of society, then you really have to stick your neck out to do stuff like this if there's a problem with this identity somehow. Like, yeah. like that stuff is real, and, and that, there's a social basis for that stuff in a way that, I don't know, if, if you're a Marxist, it's pretty depressing that you don't see as much autonomous activity around class Class just seems like too big a project, or not. At least it's not the first word on everyone's lips. Like in the United States, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot more focus on race in in the U.S. Traditionally. Well,
2: yeah, like class doesn't exist at like the level of the imaginary right now. Like it's it's it purely it's, it purely belongs to like the symbolic order. Not I mean, to get, it, not to get it, like you know G Jet Cokehead thought here or whatever, but <laughs> like it's it's not something that it's not so, you know what I mean. Like you can't. You can't. I mean, I guess some people will put on like a flat cap, but those people are douchebags. But, but you can't th- like dress like a pro. You know what I mean? Like it's 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 your abstract relationship within the economy that sort of determines your class position, and that's not something that's easy to identify with. Yeah, or like, probably like, an identity around.
0: As an example, I work in like one of the poorest neighborhoods in my city, and the only time I've seen shit about like the authentic working class was when I got involved in socialist organizations. And it's like, dude, what the fuck is the authentic working class? Is it, like, Puerto Rican dudes who are, like, mad into their, like, uh, soccer games? Or is it, like, dudes who are in a NASCAR and shit? Like, what the fuck are you even talking about? That doesn't make sense to any person who's actually living it. Yeah, well, yeah. It's housing, and I don't even, like, none of these yeah, people work but... themselves as hard as, like, you know.
2: I'm not even Socialist. sure what authentic working class, like, means. I mean, I guess if it means, like, you're not – maybe someone's, like, petty bourgeois and they think they're working class. I don't know.
0: No end well, notes. Come on, swamp side chats.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, no, seriously, though, like, like a lot of that, like, you know, flat cap class identity stuff is, like – it's like, a lot of it's, like, refracted through, like, British understandings of working class culture because the American understandings are more, you know – right right wing tinged i
0: got i got into this argument with this guy who was like a wobbly who he said shit to like one of my friends and i was like fucking unless you dress like a character from a charles dickens novel then you're not the real working class i don't need books i just drink uh, authentic pbr in my fucking pub which no which is a thing that people still say in 2017
3: yeah, it's just uh, the that's a thing about the IWW is they really do like try to pull off this workerist identity thing, and it's just so fucking cringy. Yeah. And it's just, I think that's like, really I really think that there's no future for that kind of stuff politically. Yeah, yeah and I, it's, it's it's probably a good, and it's and it is a good thing, even though it makes it harder to do like. You know, typical like you know, meat and potatoes union organizing. The fact that we're never going to probably have that kind of workerist like identity politics is this. Yeah, it's a good thing because
2: to, because it has more to do with Stalinism than anything else. I'll tell you this. Like, yeah, you want to dissolve like the working class as a thing, but if something becomes tied to somebody's like imaginary, becomes tied to their identity, they're not going to want to get rid of it.
3: so well, want, and that's yeah. that's the thing with Stalinism is that it it makes it's basically I think that, working class worker I, worker identity politics because it's the valorizing of the worker
1: as like the holy subject of the nation and you know this, this stuff pre- this stuff predates uh, stalinism this is like old school social democracy kind of like romantic stuff like yeah true, in in, the, in this in, in the same way like the yeoman farmer is um glorified in in american kind of democratic like thought you know that's kind of how people are looking at it
0: But going to Stalinism, something that I received, like, a bit of a backlash from uh, was talking about, and again, I'd be the first person to admit that, like, my analysis basically is limited to a very specific, like, talking about the period of the Cold War, I talk about, like, a very specific area in Western Europe because those are the areas that had communist parties. But um, that looking at stuff like that, like, the biggest failure of Stalinism outside of, you know, all of the shit was that it basically just co-opted and became social democracy and then they became... And then the Italian, like... The Italian communists became fucking Democrats and wanted to be like Obama, except without charisma. And, like, that. that's, like, the big example that I use beyond the modern contemporary stuff of, like, activism now is... Or the radical like constellation is basically like activist groups and intellectuals writing on blogs and sh-
2: just just say it, just say it. People post making podcasts. Say it yeah. to her face. You, say it to her
0: face. Uh, yeah, you know people who do po- no podcasts are a different class. You guys are trolls, whereas <laughs> text posters are the bourgeoisie because yep. it's easier to, make, to produce. Um,
1: we, we can't even type.
0: Yeah, yeah, you can't even type. I've been wanting to type this whole time, but it would be too loud. <laughs> yeah,
2: I am actually uh, functionally illiterate. I just have somebody run this into a speech rec- to text to speech program, and that's why I've taken all these essays.
0: See, that's funny because I'm functionally, I'm unfunctionally illiterate. Okay. And I've been putting an effort into it because words, are bourgeois, as we well know. Sorry, we're going even further off the rails, but um, like, there are no that, rails here. There is no up yeah, or down. Apparently, Beyond, sending art like, to
2: history, nor to this podcast. It's all just uh, constant shafting, uh, that will be continually rotated until
0: now until the uh, sun burns out. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, beyond, like, contemporary stuff, and, like, there's nobody who would disagree that contemporary stuff is fucked. Like, people had a lot of issues that my, with my argument that basically, like, the domination of the European left by vanguard parties inevitably led to it moderating because they were kind of stuck into this thing where it's like you couldn't take power via a revolution or else the United States would nuke you, and you couldn't take power via, like, uh, by, like, getting voted in either, really. Um, So Eurocommunism, which is turning your party into a normal... Um, Socialist Party, was kind of the response to that. Um, why, did, why did they think that the United States would nuke them if they took power, though? Uh, you know, uh, kind of, well, like, in Europe, like, Europe was, like, too important for us to let some, some milk toast ass commie, like, to close, take power. Um, there was actually a lot of stuff where the CIA was, like, fucking with communists in Italy and France and, Ger- I don't know, Germany didn't even have, they, they had their own indigenous force of people who were killing communists at that point. But, um, yeah, the CIA massively fucked with the communist parties during the point in time mm. of the 40s and 50s. So
3: oh, yeah, there was um in Italy when they had a big election and they thought the communists were gonna win, the US like flew like leaflet they flew planes and dropped leaflets all over like the place, like telling people not to vote for the communist. Like, man,
0: this, man, like that's just one example. Like there's way more shit that went down. What a golden age of imperialism. Like, couldn't we get back to that instead of just like murdering them with special ops squads or some shit like that? At least or be- robots or robots or stopping podcasts which is apparently the point that they've gotten to. Um,
1: yeah, it's the, the well. FCC is assassinating the internet. <laughs> no, assassinating to, to, <laughs> to stop swamp side. Um, yeah. so I wanted to kind of pivot off of that point about the CIA and to Talk a little bit more about this organizational theory. Like, I'm I'm curious how like deep this literature is on the left because my gut my gut feeling is that this is most systematically and best studied probably by the CIA or the FBI, <laughs> and probably not by us. Um, and I would feel like a scientific project would be to you know expropriate their science. You know what I mean?
0: Um, there honestly really isn't. Uh, not even the fucking CIA keeps tabs on us because we're not significant enough. Um, the Yeah, that's like kind of something that I've found frustrating because when you become, when you're a book nerd like I am and you become a lefty, do you get all of these books suddenly that you have to read or else people will judge you? Which is great because it lets gives you like an infinite number of books to read. But I've started getting to this point where there's this weird space between social sciences and contemporary radicalism where there just isn't fucking anything. Um, yeah. And I've got a lot of flaws with organizational materialism and other stuff that, like, originally I wanted organizational materialism to be one side of another paper that would apply the same theory to mainstream political politics, um i was writing this i started writing this in like september of 2016 so like the idea of like political machines was like insanely like on my mind cuz you know the primaries had just ended and shit couldn't imagine why yeah uh and i just kind of realized that a it would be too depressing <laughs> and b You literally couldn't even get, like, I'm starting to write something smaller about it, but you literally can't even get the information about mainstream political stuff. Like, you'd have to, or like... Wow,
1: there's got to be some good political science literature about this. Like
0: There is a website that was done in 2006 that continues this trend of like, empirical studies on political parties and, like, political machines within um, cities and stuff like that. That's the only thing you can fucking find because everything else goes by uh, public choice theory nowadays. Hmm. Um, Something that maybe a couple of decades ago we would have seen, like, a political... at least the political science side taking leftism seriously enough that they kind of did this analysis... But nowadays, like ever since, you know, the Soviet Union fell, you don't have to take that shit seriously. Even the social science side of like this kind of pseudo radical stuff is complete mired in ideology to the point of being useless for radicals. So the my periodization is there three like I kind of look at it as three periods um, of radical stuff. I start kind of fuzzily in between the, like, the reaction uh, against the French Revolution and the, like, 1870s, I kind of pick up again because I realize that it becomes very confusing to deal with, like, how liberalism was a radical thing and then it suddenly stopped being a radical thing, et cetera, et cetera. But starting with, like, the Second International, you had this, you had a ton of, like, radical workers' unions uh, throughout all of Europe and the United States. Uh, not a ton, but, like, a bunch of, like, you. each country had, like, this own, like, pretty rich history. And because they pretty, con- like, pretty much their only interaction with the state was the state trying to murder them or stop them from striking, they had this uh they had a couple of reactions but that gen like one of those reactions was the radical unionist syndicalist thing um but that syndicalism could only exist when those unions were kind of merged with the form of mutual aid societies which also came because something that's forgotten about a lot is that the the early capitalism it wasn't laissez-faire, it was very much a destroying of the old organizations of, of like, uh, corporatism, like destroying mm. of the guilds, destroying of the Catholic charities that had basically kept people alive on the street and not on the streets of Paris on a day-to-day thing. And the destruction of those organizations paved the way for the creation of radical organizations. And in France, for instance— Uh, the CGT was a combination between these mutual aid groups and the unions, and that kind of gave birth to a series of... That's another thing that I kind of make the argument of, that theory, and a lot of theory and a lot of analysis ends up being, like, kind of propagandistic from the perspective of an organization that's doing it. Um, So the CGT which had the influence of the the kind of anti-statism of these radical unions and this kind of attempt to build a different, like this ability to start thinking about building a different society from the mutual aid organizations who created this low-key anarchistic perspective. Meanwhile, on the other side, you had these social democratic parties, which was a combination of other unions and... Um, and the political parties of the era. Uh, And they had their own perspective that was uh, about, like, finding a way to to turn the things that they were doing into things that were justifiable from the perspective of revolution, which is something that's common with all of these groups. Um, That period of the Second International ended with the first world war in which basically every of these organizations betrayed themselves, but also kind of it, that's something else that I've been thinking about a lot about how like, even people who are the most quote unquote materialist and hate great man theory will suddenly revert to great man theory in order to explain like how things go wrong. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh,
1: no, no, that that makes perfect sense. There's a uh, like, tendency in, like, Keynesianism to think of, uh, like, crises as related to confidence, but then confidence in certain kinds of theories ends up being, like, you know, a few investors, you know, with primary big yeah. mouthpieces in a sort of pop Keynesianism, I suppose.
0: Yeah, it's, like, kind of a magical thinking. And, like, you know, like, the example of everything Stalin and Lenin did was justified, but... <laughs> Justified and came like naturally because they were just spouts of like naturally what history wants necessity. But Khrushchev was just on his own, and like that had nothing to do with that fucking thing. (laughs) He was just an asshole. Like. Um.
1: But, uh, yeah, it reminds me a lot of how, like, if in psychology, if you're like, if you excuse someone's behavior, you're liable to call it natural. Like, well, that's just what they do. You know, that's just constitutive of who they are. They don't really have a choice in the matter.
0: And like, so what we need to look at and, you know, to go to that, what we need to look at with regards to, you know, the failures of the syndicalists and the failures of the social Democrats is that they weren't betrayals. They were that those were just the flaws that were baked into the strategies that they were doing. In many ways, it was like the fullest, uh, achievement of what the, the, you know, these organizations, uh, giving up their, uh, their beliefs in like internationalism in order to continue to justify their interaction with the state. Well, that's what they've been fucking doing this whole time. Um, to yeah. some degree. Well,
1: no, unfortunately, but, uh, I think that I think that holds even for some of the, the most, you know, even for, like, fast Day and parties that I think are, like, really historically important and interesting that we need to learn from. Like, yeah.
0: Yeah, and, like, the, but, like, that perspective, like, I'm not saying, like, you still need to learn from it and, like, learn, A, why it happened, B, how do you make it not happen? Um, and the only example of, like, a re- And that was the Social Democrats failing. The syndicalists had this ideology of the uh, general strike wherein, like, without state power and without using military force, they were somehow going to defeat the military force of the whole state. And that also came from, like, the optimism of the mutual aid societies and the, the unions thinking that they had, figured their shit out with regards to interactions with the state. And it turns out, no, you can just get murdered. Um, the And the only example of, like, a successful movement was the Russian Revolution. And the Russian Revolution, and, you know, I, I have understudied the Russian Revolution, which is probably because of my anarchist origins, but um, the That was, like, one of the only examples where all of these groups were kind of working in interactions with each other rather than at odds with each other or just isolated from each other. Um, The other example is the United States, but the socialist movement in the United States was underdeveloped and ended up getting fucking crushed. Uh, which brings us into the era of the mass party, where the Vanguard Party, which kind of was this combination of activist and union and political party beliefs, um, dominated after World War after World War One and more so after World War Two. But because the Vanguard Party was kind of the only game in town in the in Europe, they. St- they something as opposed to during the second international where all of these organizations were able to check one another. And if, you know, the, the French socialist party utterly, you know, betrayed itself, uh, when they elected somebody into the minister's office, and then he immediately voted to like use military force against the strike. um, then, like, people were able to to then, like, leave that and move to other, like, competing organizations without harming the Socialist Party in and of itself. Uh, Comparatively, during the, you know, the period of the Cold War, the the problems that the vanguard parties had, where, like I said earlier, they couldn't really win, um, except electorally, maybe... Um, like that steadily, you steadily see that problem become the problem of the entirety of the left. And you had a variety of reactions to that. Some were intellectuals trying to analyze it with this kind of idea that by analyzing society, we can destroy it. And then you had other examples, uh, the autonomists and stuff like that. But the party's eventual reaction was to moderate itself into oblivion, which brings us to now where the only organizations that are left are the organizations that are the easiest to form, which are intellectual podcasts, mostly. Mostly. Um, mostly. Hey, mostly. hey we, we make this look easy.
2: We make this <laughs> easy, okay? <laughs> Hard fucking work.
0: But, uh, like, you know... Your heroes left- of
3: socialist labor for this, okay? <laughs>
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm actually wearing, like, 50 medals, mostly because, you know, this is my first podcast, but I still already have PTSD from all these tangents. The modern left is basically, like, intellectuals, and that is a broader example. Uh, I had—I was actually even harder on intellectuals uh, in the original version of this paper to the point where— Like, I felt like almost one of the most, the best ways to conclude it would just be select all, delete, and, like, go outside. (laughs) Mm. You know, this includes, like, Facebook shit and all of that other stuff because you are basically acting as an an intellectual in those spaces and activist groups.
1: You know, you're doing theory production, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and paid for my theoretical labor. Um, the way that we look back on leftism is really as a you know who wrote books and what were the problems with those books, as opposed to you know more practical lessons.
2: Well, the thing is,
0: you know, there's no institutional memory
2: because there's no surviving institutions, Precisely. which it seems to me like. If- if you look back, like for the, one of the, it seems I'm guessing I'm not a historian. That's not my field. I don't really know shit about it. But I'm gonna talk about it anyway. It's, one of the problems it seems like with like researching, you know, like past like revolutionary organizations is that, you know, you you basically it's hard enough to find out information on a one individual thing. So it's like you're gonna write a book. All right. Well, I'll write like a history of like the IWW, and then I'll look for all the IWW shit and compile that into a like a linear narrative. But it's like okay. I, I also now have to figure out about all these other organizations, like, like a third of them probably don't even, there's not even any written record of them. Some of them were underground societies of dudes who collected guns and, you know, were, like, trying to incite riots. You know what I mean? Like, just figuring out how, like, all these complex things interacted with each other in a particular time would require such an immense amount of research and chronology like it it just seems staggering like who's gonna pay for that shit
0: yeah precise i am i that was like my conclusion with um the thing i'm writing about direct action which is that that there are almost every city in the northeast i don't know about other cities because i've not been to them because i i'm i'm in the cool part of the u.s um literally phrasing fucking cold but uh Like, almost all of these places, you'll have a community center, and that community center will almost definitely, because that was a movement in the 70s and 80s, have radical roots, and nobody fucking knows that because the people who formed that burnt out at some point, and now you're on the fifth generation of that, and you need to interview all those, like, you know, if the person who interviewed the um, Surgeon or Truth people hadn't done that, we'd have no clue about that organization and all of the amazing work that they did, both theoretically and practically. Um, Mm. It's staggering, but it's also something where it's like, or another example is gardens. Like, the gardening movement did start off as a radical movement of environmentalists, and you'll have these things that are, you know, that did come from radical roots, but at this point are just carrots. Yeah, yeah. Something like that
1: gotta do an archaeology of knowledge
0: yeah, it's like it's it's scary um but yeah, like I feel like uh, we should at least start doing shit like that because if you really want to like go if you want to go beyond like oh they were wrong and don't do what they did, well, I don't know why they did what like if you want to get to the reasons of why an organization does what it does, and like replicate the the process in your head to figure out what was wrong with that process and how you could improve on it you need to do some real fucking work in terms of archiving and shit like that which you don't see a lot because it's a lot of fucking work and it's not the kind of work that's you know really well, I think
3: like that's the kind of work that intellectuals can actually do that will be useful for
0: absolutely I've gotten a lot more pro intellectual now that I'm off of Tumblr and Left Book, to the degree that. I am. Well,
2: yeah, I mean, basically responding to someone's hot takes and memes, probably isn't like that's why I don't think Left Book is ever going to like pr- like produce like the future like Karl Marx because I just can't imagine reading like a book of like le- of like <laughs> archived like correspondence where it's like and then he left a angry emoji under this point. Oh my god. The no, the, the, so the rainbow flag was a seasonal emoji that was no longer optional there, <laughs> therefore, you know, like it's just it's, I can't picture like that milieu like producing like any long standing, well uh, theoretical so, like imports so. though.
0: Well, they all learned to be snarky from Lenin and Marx, but that's seemingly all that they learned. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This yeah. guy was a bag of dicks. I should do that too.
2: Well, no, you know, like it's, 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 uh, you know, everyone loves an asshole, you know, like that's why, like, Doctor House, like, went on for like ten seasons. It's Like, let's just watch yeah. you, Laurie,
1: be a dick for an hour every week. Well, it's, that's, that's... it's, it's, <laughs> a, it's the asshole who deserves to be an asshole because he's right, you know. Yeah, yeah he gets his. And, 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 and he, it's really, it's like a niche, niche thing. It's like, you know, so what. That you know this person is awful by every possible interpersonal human metric. He provides meaning for us all.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's a lovable, the, lo- the lovable curmudgeon.
0: Or oh, good old which, which is why House MD is a is a Marxist Leninist text. Um,
1: yeah, right. Well, basically every television show has this element now. It's about the nihilist antihero, but you know he's got a point. You know.
2: Yeah, that's everything. Yeah. that's Rick and Morty. That's fucking that's that's every single show. It's
1: it's yeah. Yeah, look how every, sadistic they are. But come on, don't they kind of deserve it? You know?
2: Yeah, yeah. Every, every, everyone wants to be a Rick. Yeah, real Ricks. Um, is so that, is that the conclusion? Is that what we're concluding with? Unless like you have, have. have some to say that could possibly be more intelligent than my observations on Doctor House MD. I mean, I just don't know how.
1: our show we'd like to thank Gene Allen again for coming on next time we'll be diving deep into the enemy camp reading Julius Evola's critique of fascism from the right if you want to support us like us on Facebook subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes or just say hi swampsidechats at gmail.com And remember, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.